Humility drives everything. You can't have an amazing customer experience without an awesome employee experience. The power of the pack is the wolf, and the power of the wolf is the pack. I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. I am so excited to be here today with Susan Sirota. We met um, during COVID on Clubhouse, actually. But even through audio, I could tell that Susan was someone really special. Not only is she a two-time founder with Exit, she has a long, long storied career in the CPG and beverage business, but she is someone who gave such pointed, amazing advice to all the founders that would come every week to this forum we would host. And she really, you can just tell, she has a kind heart and she was bright, bright and shiny. And so I was so thrilled, A, to meet her and now to be able to bring her to all of you. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to be here. It's just wonderful to be with you. I know. This is our first time together in person, just so everyone So knows. amazing. Uh, since we were virtual friends, we don't live in the same place. Okay, so I want to start at the very, very beginning. Awesome. So as someone who's like starting a career, how did you know you wanted to like be in beverage and CPG? Like how did that even start? Oh gosh. So I did not get into it saying I wanted to be in CPG. <laughs> um, I got into it saying I wanted the power. What? <laughs> And that's where it started. So my story. That is the most candid, (laughs) hilarious thing I've ever heard. I wanted the power. Okay, continue. Totally wanted the power. So I had a very atypical um, upbringing. Um, I moved out of my parents' house when I was 10. Um, I dropped out of high school and really had a very different kind of childhood. Raised yourself. Raised myself. Luckily, I had had a foundation where I understood the value of education and really believed that was what was going to get me back on. Um, found some help and ended up actually taking a GED, getting into a community college for a semester, got straight A's, got like off the chart scores on the SATs and had a um, really renowned, well-known doctor write a letter to my university mm-hmm. explaining my background and asking them to give me a shot. And was the doctor the person that sort of helped you he along was, the way? He was. Um, I ended up seeing him because someone was going to let me stay in their house if I played that game right. when I was like 15. And, and he chased after me to help me. And mm. he, he was one of the people who really stands out to me of some, how you can make a change one person at a time. And mm. today I try really hard to help people. And I think about it as a way of paying him back because it means he's helped more people. There's this clip. Steve Hardy, the Steve Hardy mm-hmm. show, where he had these people that they showed up on the screen and he was like, starts crying. And you're like, why is he crying? And he's like, these people basically, when he started his comedy career, mm-hmm. gave him a line of credit with their travel agency. So he would go travel and do his comedy. And it was like $11,000 like back in the day, which is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And he starts crying because he's like, I wouldn't be here without you. And he's like, I've been looking for you mm-hmm. for all these years. And like, they changed his life and his career. And I think it's so powerful when you meet these people that are just generous of heart for no reason. Mm-hmm other than to be generous. Totally. And the things he said that really stick with me and actually how I work with other founders today is 
He said, let me teach you to see the world through my eyes. And if you can see something different, nothing will stop you from getting it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that he taught me was the value of internal language. Mm. And I was a typical abused child who blamed themselves for everything and would always be like, I could have done this. I should have done this. And he literally rewired my brain with me to say, next time I will. Mm. And it's so much more actionable and powerful. And yeah, so he gave me a lot of gifts that I use today. And so got you to college. Got me to college. And once I got to college, um, I wanted control of my life and financials control as well as decisions. And so as I stepped back and looked at the landscape, Procter & Gamble at the time was the hardest place to get into. It was the most important thing in terms of really getting a great foundation. And brand management was the general management of the company. It was the decision-making function. Got it. And wow, you were really analytical for a young person to be I like, was. this is the matrix of the company. Like, I just applied to be like, that's a cool company. I'll be like, whatever job mm-hmm. they'll give me. And you're like, nope, this is the one that makes the most amount of money. This is the one. Yeah. Wow. And and on top of that, I was very much not the typical person. Course, At the yeah. time, P&G only hired into brand from the top five schools. Mm. And um, they were grad schools. And so I went in and I interviewed into sales. And I told the person who was interviewing me, who was one of my mentors still today, what I wanted to do. And he said, that doesn't happen here. And I was like, we'll make it happen. <laughs> and so I went into sales and let them pay for Doctor my grad really school. really helped you out, huh? Going from like, <laughs> right? oh, no, we'll make it. No, we're going to make it happen. <laughs> totally. But they were great and paid for my grad school. And wow. that then enabled me to transition into brand. And that was the function that really got to control the decisions. And So what was your point, first brand that you worked with? So my very first brand was the always brand, Feminine Protection. And I will tell you, with all of the lack of knowledge of women's health, the last thing you want to do is put a younger woman into this brand and learn everything that a woman goes through (laughs) way too soon. It was And also the men running the category for the women. Yeah, (laughs) totally. But that was in my brand side. I was in the food and beverage division in sales. I touched a lot of different products and then I switched over into Tide. Wow. Yeah. So my, my claim to fame at P&G was the launch of Swiffer. Wow. Yeah. Major. Yes, it was fun. What were your takeaways from your time there? Like what were the sort of the key things around brand or beverage that you that you carried with you? Yeah. So for me, P&G is the best at really two things. One is the power of defining a culture. Mm. They have their purpose, values, and principles. And I have today my own purpose and principles. And most leaders I know from P&G also use that to really help filter what they want to do as well. Do you mind sharing your purpose and principles with us? So my, I'll, I'll share my purpose and a few of my principles. Okay, There's 10 of them. Yeah, but, um, of them. yeah so hmm. my overall purpose is to enable others to be their best selves and transform their businesses forever and for good. It's a lot of what we do on, on, the, on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. And right. And so you understand the choicefulness of, of those the a few of my principles, I believe that humility drives everything. Mm-hmm. That you can't have an amazing customer experience without an awesome employee experience. That the power I think some people need to hear that one, <laughs> right? It's it's very true, and and the power of the pack is the wolf, and the power of the wolf is the pack. Mm. And I really do believe in playing team. And that's the way to do it. Um, it's not just about the group. It's about that dynamic between the wolf. I believe lined, aligned incentives matter. Yeah. So when we start looking at who I choose to work with and engage with, it really is people who really sort of fall into those belief systems. I would not be a great match 
to engage and help people who don't believe the same way that I do. And it's so nice to have it articulated and it makes my decisions easier. Which is sort of the same thing that happens in companies. Totally. But I was going to ask you, like, when you're in corporate sort of jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Because a company can have very clear values and principles, and you might resonate with 60% of them, Mm -hmm. right? And But you're building a corporate career. How do you navigate when those things are in conflict? Yeah, so it's it's a great question. To me, what makes good company values Mm. are that the opposite can be true elsewhere. So if you look at known examples, Google is all about good is not great enough, right? Yep. And then you have Facebook that is fast is better than slow. And then you have J&J, which is be rigorous and get it right. Three very different opposite ways of defining the quality of their output. And that is where you have power in a culture, where I can look at it as an employee and say, I don't fit this. Mm-hmm. I should not be here. And that way, when we're recruiting people as the company or as an employee and you're in, you're wanting to find a place that you belong to, that you really matters more than that, you can look at that as a real guide to save yourself time and to save the company time when it's not a match. So I don't have to look at the values of the company and, and have them be my core values. We're all different, but I have to really want to be in that that combined energy that they're, their approach. I never would have been a good employee at Uber. Right. And so after P&G, where did you go next? Yeah, so corporate world, I went from P&G to Coors, and then from Coors to Pete's Coffee. And for me, when we look at this theme of coffee, the other thing I got from P&G that really carried to the others was building organizational capacity, really leading through people. Mm. Um, At P&G, in brand, it was up or out. And the only way you could get promoted is if you develop people to yep. take your place. And so really understanding not to give people the answer, that's easy, but to help see the world through their eyes, their values, their judgments, and then help them see around corners and coach them to make their own decisions, right? Yep. And being able to bring that to the rest of the world that I, I applied and the culture stuff really was impactful because Coors was all about entertainment, sports, music, right? But it was very much grounded in this older school culture of um, coming from the union days. Right. Which was very different from a high performance team that needed to, to be created. So really looking at how do you really change culture with a big ship? Because you can't go fast because and you capsize. Fast. Right. So how did, how did that go? It took time. And we had a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, but I was brought in and worked on Coors Light, which was a $2 billion business. We were number three in declining. And because of the culture switch, the first couple of years was not easy, but we ended up being number two and wow. growing. And wow. so it was a total turnaround based on culture. Itself. How long, what was the timeline on that culture shift? So it took a good two years mm. to have it into the organization. And a lot of that was really defining and changing the systems, the people. It was, that must have had a big turnover people-wise yeah. because when you're changing culture, I'm sure some people are like, yeah. this is not how things are done. Totally. And it was an invitation for people to stay or leave. Right. Right. And and be a part of something different or say, this isn't for me. Right. And we had that same thing when I did go to Pete's. Gosh, talk about a culture turnaround. It was about the quality of the cut. It was about 
like not growth. We didn't have internet in the stores, right? Yeah. It was, we provided beans to Starbucks from the beginning of the day and they were all about this growth and pizza was all about this, you know, richness. And, yeah. and we got on Oprah's favorite things and our president of coffee lost it because that's not why people should have been drinking pizza. So it was really like oh, the store managers when we were doing promotions for our anniversary. Are we trying to sell coffee or are we trying to do our anniversary? And it's like really helping people see the intersection of their brand culture fit, mm. right? Which is so critical. It's it's Amazon's the world's most customer-centric company. Right. And we get all of these stories about how they treat their people and that right. it's really hardcore. However, at the same time, they're voted best place to work by LinkedIn, by their own employees every year. Number two, actually. Really? Yeah. So and it's because it attracts certain people mm. who want to be in that environment. It's that brand culture fit, that hardness and that drive is for... This is, this is actually really... So I'm reading a book right now about mm -hmm. power. <laughs> Speaking of power. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they talk about is in the Stanford prison experiment, the ad that were like, why did it become so violent? Why did it go like mm -hmm. derail so quickly? And in the advertising, they talked about, we're doing a study around prisons. And mm -hmm. so the people that were drawn to to be participate in that study were people that were pro more prone to violence, mm -hmm. right? Based on the marketing and recruitment process, you get different people. Cool. And then they did it again. And they said, we're just asking people to participate in a psychological study. And they found that the violence wasn't nearly as high as it was the first mm -hmm. round. And same thing when you go and talk about recruiting for police. I think, believe it's the New Zealand Police Department they have a different recruiting structure. So like the, mm -hmm. the ads to recruit are like diverse and they're showing people like helping an old man across the street. It's not about like military. It's not mm -hmm. about. And so they have a, a very diverse police force and it's also a very nonviolent police force. Mm -hmm. And so this is a book, I think, Incorruptible by Brian Class. But I'm reading it now and I think it's really interesting because we talk about, yes, we have these flawed systems, but mm -hmm. a lot of it is the language and how we appeal to people that build the culture. And if we just modify some of that stuff, you can build a radically different culture. Totally. Yeah. Which I, I love that. I want to read that book now. It's really good. Um, totally yeah. going to check it out. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's so fascinating. And it, it goes back to what we were saying with the match, right? It's it's that brand culture fit, making sure you're getting what you need for what you stand for, as well as that you are attracting those people. So when you talk about, you know, those studies, like who do you want to talk to? Who do you right. want to be a part of it? And that's half the battle. I personally would not be a match for Amazon either. Yeah, right. I love that I know that. But it's like, and I'm not here to say that they, they, they've they been obviously very successful. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, no, I know people that work there. Some people really, really love it. It's like, yeah. that's the whole point that there's all these different. Exactly, th right? Th every like pot has its lid. Yeah. And I think, but I think it's when we talk about culture and we talk about building out culture, especially living in more of an inclusive world that we live in, like mm -hmm. so much of this is stuff to look at to as a business owner or as a creative is that you want to make sure that the language you're using is not ostracizing you from a greater population. Completely. And if you believe that which yeah. you and I both know because we look at the numbers yeah. and we look at the data and we know that if you have a diverse workforce, you are going to perform better. Yep. And that over time, as if you really have that long view, you will survive. Yeah. You will not survive if you don't. Yeah, However, like other people yeah. don't believe that. Right. So what happens will happen. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So having a long like term career in corporate America, <laughs> it's a big jump and leap to decide to leave a big company with big resources and to go out on your own. Mm -hmm. How did you know that you were ready to do that? Oh gosh. So I was in some ways an accidental entrepreneur. <laughs> I had left um, Pete and I was actually had offered a CMO job at a fortune 50 company and I was ready to take it. And I talked to one of my mentors who asked me if I was 
scared, nervous. I was like, no, I've done this before. And he looked at me. He's like, why the hell would you take it? It's like, boom, mind exploded, right? It was like, boom. And I really stepped back and said, you know, that's right. Like, I, I do know how to do this. And so let me go figure out what I want. And at that point, was in this process of doing that, I met um, someone who had actually the initial software for reward checking accounts mm. and said they wanted to build this thing. And, and so I said I could help them for six months. And I was like figuring out what I wanted to do. I'm like, I can help. Ended up building one of the very first community fintech Wow. Companies um, sold after my six-month commitment five years later. <laughs> and today, it's Kasasa is the number one account opening platform for community banks and credit unions still. Amazing. Um, the thing that I am most proud of is we built, did it by building a culture. We, the company, when we talk about culture, in big companies, it is important because it gives you that sense of connectivity and belonging. In startups, it's imperative. Yeah. Right? Because it's, you're going to get, we know building is hard. Yeah. And your purpose, your why is what gets you up the 78th time you get punched in the stomach. And it also is your rallying cry. And so we were this product for community institutions. We created this weird word, Kasasa, which was all about getting attention. Eyes wide shut consumer. Banking's hard. They don't want to pay attention. Right. So put this whole thing in place. And the government made our product illegal because of all the lobbying of the mega banks. And this was before the financial crisis. Right. And so we went out and had all of our reoccurring revenue hit overnight. And our purpose was to win the war with the mega banks. And so we went out with that cry to all of the community institutions and said, you better get in line now. Give us a huge deposit because we're going to the government. This is wrong. It was very wrong because this is America, right? And right. you say community banks are the ones who support small business. And really made that pitch, which was just so authentic and true to what we believed and why we had created the company. And they got in line and gave us deposits, which gave us enough cash to keep going and Amazing. got the laws overturned wow. and um, continued to build. So um, in that, we got best place to work every year that I was there. I left, we had what we called the patch, which was a visual representation of our four values mm. that really fit with this war of mega banks. And we had around 25 people who had gotten it tattooed on their body. Oh my gosh. And I was reading an article that came out like a year ago that said that the number's up to like 45 now. Oh and I was like, gosh. that's pretty cool after we sell and leave and yeah. it's still that culture of, of Well, but people special. feel it like because of the right... Right company culture is your values and your beliefs regardless, irrespective of the company. And I think that's a really yeah. important thing is like when you're building from like a mission place or a values mm -hmm. place, people resonate very deeply and that's what carries the long-term retention. Mm -hmm. And then during growth stages, when things are challenging, because every yeah. growth stage of a company is challenging, people are willing to dig in in a way that, you know, they, I think now mm -hmm. they're saying, you know, especially with the, the transient nature of work and people, you know, working away from home. And mm -hmm. even with COVID, they were saying like, you know, back in World War II, we came together as a country and we like dug in and people did what they had to do to mm -hmm. be at war. And we don't have the same allegiance to American values as we used mm -hmm. to, right? Uh, we need to talk about, yeah. maybe we need a culture, different culture totally. shift. But it's been, it's interesting to sort of see that where it's like how people come when they can come together and what drives them to come together mm -hmm. versus what pushes people apart. Yeah. It, it so isn't. And I take culture and I'm so beyond even just our employees, right? It's exactly what you're saying. It can change really everything. Yeah. And 
So if I look at just, I know you love data. I love data. So looking at the stats, um, we have over 95% of companies actually have their values defined. If you look at, depending on the study, whether it's Aspen Institute, HBR, or Corn Ferry, 8 to 11% of those companies have programmed the culture. Yep. Um, so very small. Yeah. Right? And, oh, by the way, out of the ones that do have their values, 87% of them have integrity. Enron had integrity as a value. So you look at that and you're like, okay, so when I look at that gap and I look at the gap that 76% of executives say that culture is really a driving force, but then only 32% of those same executives say that it actually drives anything outside of employee retention and recruitment and right. brand and employer brand reputation. Right. It's not integrated into their strategy their go-to-market, their customers, all of the things that really then will make right. it be a rallying cry to attract long-term the people who want to attack this bigger purpose. And it has to be baked in very early. So it's like, you know, I think for a lot of early stage entrepreneurs, it's like you're so consumed with just the day-to-day of the business. Mm-hmm. You're like, how could I possibly think about that? We're not even a big company yet. We have five employees, we have 10 employees, mm-hmm. we have whatever, 20. But the reality is if you don't program it into day one, you'll never really program it. And when you do, it won't feel like lived in. And I think the key, right, we, in, integrity <laughs> is alignment between the body and the mind. Right. right. And it has to be lived in. Yeah. And so just saying on paper, we do this, but not putting that in people's bodies, you'll, you're not living those values. And when people rally is when they're living those values. Completely. And and we know building companies, there's it's there's so many things. And we have to decide where we're going to put our attention with culture, our culture is going to be created. Right. It's whether or not we do it with right. intention. Right. 100%. Like, right. It, it make, you can have a culture that's totally new and then you're like, well, how did this become the company? Totally. And I think that's, that's a lot of companies. They wake yeah. up and they're like, wow, this is not a great place to work or people yeah. are, you know, not nice to each other or whatever. There's like <laughs> a cutthroat culture and like, that's not what I intended. Right. And talking to founders, I use, I look, out of those 8% of companies that program, they deliver 4x the value. Oh, wow. Um, it is, and I, you can start really digging into, like Ford back in 2008 is the greatest business turnaround of all time in the U.S. They went from having their stock go down to a dollar a share. Um, and they were always about, purpose was cars for the great multitude. And they came in and they used one Ford to rebuild and change their culture. Mm-hmm. They um, chose not to take the bailout money that their peers did. And they went out and really leveraged this culture to change it to drive. They became number two, kicked Toyota out of that spot and revamped their show price. They went from, in 2008, losing $14 billion to two years later being at $7 billion in profit. Wow. And so you look at the power of culture. You look at this value creation. And so talking to founders and saying, okay, it's going to happen whether you want it or not. Right. This is your opportunity to do what you want, but this is the number one driver proven case after case after case to drive your success. Totally. So you don't, it doesn't have to be huge, right? I look at how do you operationalize it when you're really young in your company's history and you have fewer employees, you get to hand touch everyone. Right. So doing things like making sure that you're clearly communicating it so you attract the right people making sure that you have onboarding done in a way that brings that to life, how you incorporate it in all of your storytelling, yep. and then small rituals that don't take tons of time to do, but those rituals are so important. Yep. Then as you grow and you start looking at, okay, my compensation strategy, how do I make sure I'm doing that with my culture? Okay, 
We look at what is our go-to-market? Okay, how does our culture drive how we think about right. the market? So it becomes a how versus additional work that right. they have to take on. Well, I think it's really important because we talk a lot about like, you know, people now that are scrambling to make sure that they have a more like equal staff base, right? Whether that's <laughs> like women, people of color, queer culture, you know, and they're hiring and they're hiring people. But the problem is if the culture does not support diversity, right? True <laughs> inclusion then those people don't stay long because Absolutely. you have to build a welcoming environment. And I've worked in plenty yeah. of places that weren't welcoming to me <laughs> and I didn't stay long yeah. because it wasn't a place that I felt seen, heard. And that's a big part of coming to work mm-hmm. is feeling seen, heard and like appreciated and valued. Totally. And so I think it's really, really important because if you're not baking it into the how, you can try all day long, mm-hmm. but it will never work. Totally. And 100%, you won't get that performance because of issues like that. Yeah. And... So I always say to founders as well that you can take a relatively little amount of time now yeah, to save a lot of time later with things like that churn that you're talking about because you can't not only get the performance, but you're continually doing the same thing and rehiring people or questioning every tactic you do because you don't have a clear direction for decisions. Well, there's also like a real level of urgency around, especially when you talk about inclusivity, because they have said, I don't have the exact, I heard this DAI expert talk mm-hmm. about this, so I don't have the exact stat and where to find it. But she said that there's never to this day mm-hmm. in the history of time been a company that has successfully at Series B mm-hmm. decided to build inclusive culture oh, and succeed. Right? So if you don't bake yeah. it in day one, it's not going to happen. It hasn't, it hasn't been able to go backwards. Now, I do believe I hold space for the idea that someone's going to have to figure that one out, that they're a bigger company and they're going to have to figure out how to get to inclusivity, but it hasn't happened yet. And I thought that it was so, so fascinating because it was like, oh yeah, you you are, because we know that if you're not inclusive, you make less money, you're less innovative, all these sorts of things. So you have to bake it in day one. It has to be effort day one. Otherwise you miss a massive profit opportunity. And so I think that's like sort of how I have framed it to a lot of people, which is like, it's, it's not like a, it's not like a luxury or a nice to have. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, imperative for your business to succeed. Yeah, because if you are a rock star best of talent that can really make an impact at a company and you are fill in the blank, not, and you go to an environment and you don't see you, you're not going to join. You have choices today. Or you join, you don't stay long. Exactly. You get the title at the big company, you say, great, did for six months and now I'm out. Got check and now I can do my own thing. So um, it's why it's the imperative, right? I truly believe, looking at, again, the data, that in the long term, um, we will see a lot of the companies who are making short-term decisions of exclusivity um, that are going to be left by the wayside. And I can't wait for that day. Well, culture eats strategy for breakfast, and it's been made evidently clear that the culture, especially Gen Z and what's coming up, is no longer aligned with this older way of doing things. And I think that comes across the board politically. Work-wise, like I think that there's a lot of things that have to shift to update, um, which I'm excited about. Yeah, me too. Excited about. And the the one other thing I'd add to this that we haven't hit on is that it's not just retention, right? It is productivity. Mm -hmm. If you look at these companies that I mentioned that have programmed their culture, they actually have 25% less employees for their revenue than their peer sets. Oh wow! Because they're so you look at more value creation and a lot less people. Four times more value and 25% less employees. You got it for revenue. And for so you look at that and you're like, it's because those employees that are there, they're leveraging a diverse skill base because they are feeling like they're a part of something 
they can do more. They want to do more. There's none of this, what we're hearing on flight quitting and the, the lack of passion. It's a job, check the box, right? They're really engaged in that purpose. Yeah. And they're really engaged in their peer group and they see themselves. And to your point, they get to bring their whole selves there. Yeah. And then that makes them better at what they do. And it doesn't mean even working harder or longer. It just, it's because as I can, you know, 30 seconds yeah. um, took a whole life to draw this. And it's so true with, with people, even at that, where you're looking at them, they can give more and have more productivity because they're not putting that energy into all the other stuff that happens when you are. Um, well, when you're managing like politics or you're like afraid you're getting in trouble for something. Totally. It, you know, if you can relax into work, you can just 100% be more productive. Yeah. So you've obviously had a very sort of unconventional life and resilience is something you've had to cultivate. Yes. A, I understand that like there's a piece of that that's survival and you have to, but I think that, you know, being a creative or a business owner or anything in work, resilience is a key, key, key part of succeeding. Yeah. And so what do you think that, what has allowed you A, to cultivate resilience successfully, but then I, I think of resilience like a muscle. Mm -hmm. So the more that, you know, things have like hit me upside the head. I get better and better at responding knowing that like I've been through things before. Yeah. And so I just would love you to talk a little bit about like sort of how you think of resilience and how you've chosen to navigate it. It's the hard thing, right? It really is. And it's the difference. And so for me personally, I started the first probably half of my life being extremely resilient because I wasn't going to lose. Mm -hmm. And that was what was driving me. Mm -hmm. And probably through my corporate career, I still was in the mind of, I can't lose. Mm -hmm. I, I, I just can't. It's not an option. I know what that feels like. And it was this wall of, of protection for me. Right. I put everything I was into it. I did not have a whole self. Right. Right. It was, I am going to make sure that I am safe in my environment and I have control of everything. And right. then, the numbing of achievement. Totally. I've also been there where it's like, you know, the more you think like, okay, like if I achieve, 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 it's validation, number <laughs> one. But it's also a, another way I think of numbing as well, which is like the putting your yeah. whole self into work in a way that's like outcome yeah. based for sure. Totally. But not necessarily like, yeah, yeah it's definitely a protection mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, that's a hard thing to move past and yeah. it takes a lot of work. Um, and thankfully I've had enough opportunities where I was, and I think enough people who helped me in um, my life where I started being more resilient because I cared about what I was doing. It became, uh, with my last company, we were there to save animals lives. And if we failed, yes, I still, had the personal stuff going on, but it was like, we are going to lose the opportunity to save animals' lives. Right. It was, and what I do today with helping other CEOs, it is, I can't knock it up because they need me. Right. It matters. Looking at the world for me in the second half through my lens of impact, then it, beca it became a much more positive reason to get up. And I will be the first one to throw myself a pity party for five minutes, <laughs> sometimes a day, sometimes even longer. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> and um, I will actually call my friends at times and be like, you know what? I need a pity party. Yeah. Will you join me? And they're like, sure. Who are we mad at? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, life, right? But then putting that aside and saying, at this point, if we don't just fix this, address this, try again, then we lose that opportunity. And, and, and I've had enough people in my first part of my life 
who didn't give up on me. Right. And now I don't want to give up on them. Mm-hmm. And it feels much better to get up for those reasons. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think. Well, I think what you're hitting on, I think, is an important part of what they say: the happier people in life. One of the key principles that, like, people with before they die, the like regrets they have. The people that have less regrets are people that are connected to something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that you, there's the purpose of something bigger that you're making an impact that matters that's bigger than you, right? Yeah. That drives you. That even when things are hard, you're able to move through that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it drives who I work with. Right. It drives what I do. I feel very fortunate. Like I've lived a life where I get to choose. Yep. And so I have a very, very strong filter and I look at it and say, can I really make an impact here? And is it an impact of something that I care about? Right. And my goal right now through my purpose I shared is through other people. Yeah. So it, with that in world, it, it, it becomes easier to get up. Yeah. And maybe it's also that it's a muscle. Well, I think it is a muscle. I think yeah. I always say, like, I heard it somewhere and I feel bad that I don't know who said it. But it's just like it, with, with everything that, like, is devastating, you just get better shock absorbers on the car. Yeah. So the thing that felt, like, horrible when you were 25 that happens again at 30 or 35 or 40, it's like, oh, but I, I've been here before. Yeah. So it's not as scary. It's not as daunting. It's not as devastating. Like, I'm able to handle it a little bit better. Yeah. It's still painful and still devastating. I'm not yeah. saying it's not. It's just one of those things that you know you'll be okay. And I think that's yeah. a big thing for me in the framework of when things are hard is that I've gotten through hard things and I know I'll be okay. Yeah. And I'm allowed to be in pain for however long mm-hmm. it takes to be yeah. out of pain, right? Like we're allowed to sit and go through the grief or whatever yeah. it is. And then when we're out of it, we just, we know that there, every feeling is temporary. Totally. And that's, you know, I, I have a few friends who struggle a lot, especially founders with mental health stuff and depression. Mm-hmm. It's like every feeling is temporary. I'm not saying this feeling might last for a year. I'm not saying yeah. it's not going to be here for a long time, but it can't possibly yeah. last forever. Yeah. Totally. So that's the part where you're like, the, the, you know, it's temporary. So just it's yeah. tough when you're sitting in it, but knowing that once you get through it and it happens yeah. again, you've, you've gotten through it before. It's, it's, you're hitting on one of the reasons I think being a founder is such a hard, lonely journey. Yeah, it's so hard. Yeah. It's like in any other area, if you are super unhappy and unhealthy because it's hard and you keep getting kicked, anyone who isn't in that world looks at you, well, go do something else. Right. And when you're a founder, you have commitments that you can't. Yeah. You have people's lives under you. You have your investor dollars under you. Investors, employees. Right. Yeah. You are obligated in a different way to like weather the storm. Totally. And sometimes the only way out of it is through it. Right. And when everyone in your world who doesn't understand that is like, why don't you just leave? Why are you so unhappy? I think it drives such a feeling of emptiness and loneliness. Yeah. You know, and and it's because you have to. So I think your your point that it won't last forever is is really important because it's I- not like you can just walk away in that scenario. But I also think that that's the thing, having, uh, you know, shut down a company mm-hmm. um, after seven years. I think that I look at it and because I felt so obligated mm-hmm. to investors and other people, I endured probably maybe longer than I should have. And mm-hmm. I think that there's something you said for enduring hard times for sure. And I think there's definitely too short of windows to give up. Yeah. And then there are windows where I think you're like, okay, if it's been years and years of resistance and making my head against a wall then maybe we're like out of alignment with purpose. And maybe there's a way to like redirect totally. a purpose. And I think that's a lot of what I also want to encourage founders, entrepreneurs to know mm-hmm. is that like, the, you know, like 
a year, sorry, weather the storm. You got you got to endure a little longer. But at a certain point, it's also okay to say this doesn't work for me anymore, and I don't want this anymore. I think there's like a little bit there's like a there's a healthy um, like tightrope dance of that, which is absolutely. I love that. I think that's such an important point. Yeah. And the first part, I think, when you are in the hard and feeling alone, and people are like, just leave, and that's. At a point, most founders that are in that, I'm hoping, want to be in that because right. they see through it right. um, and totally love that you're emphasizing that, that at the end of the day, founders are people yeah. and, and they have one life to live. Yeah. yeah. And you're as long as, you know, like that was the thing for us, even when things were hard, it was like I still loved the values and the mission mm-hmm. so fiercely that I didn't want to walk away from yeah. it. But then you realize also like values and mission can apply to many expressions of purpose. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to remember. Just because this is one manifestation of that value and purpose doesn't mean it's the only one. Yeah. And so I want to talk about now a new manifestation of your purpose and values, which is you're moving into coaching. Mm-hmm. And so what was sort of the inspiration to do that? And what made you be like, this is this is something that I'm really like. I know you like help yeah. a lot of founders, but it's different to go from like helping founders to becoming a coach. In between my two companies, I formally coached. Uh, I also did fractional work mm, right. and supported others. And so I had a taste there of the formal coaching. On top of that, when I stepped back and said, when I left my last company, it was a hard time for me. Right. It's one of those times where we were in the pandemic. I just, I was struggling a lot and everyone thought it was a great thing. And I did not think it was a great thing because it wasn't what we were building. And, right. and a lot goes into that. And, and so that's when I did step back and redefine my own purpose and principles. And in doing that, um, really evaluated like the things that brought me joy, not just in the short term, but in the history of my, my career. And I actually took out a, a notepad and for six months just took notes in there in terms of the times that really formed me in my leadership style. Mm. Like I have very distinct now memories. Like pre and post you. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And, and it's, an, it's an exercise I highly recommend for anyone to look back and do because then you, I think you can celebrate yourself. Yeah. Uh, and the learnings that you've had in a way that can bring back your confidence when you've gone through something hard. Well, I also think like early in my career, I was numbing myself through achievement. And it was only recently that I back and looked at some of the milestones from like my first mm-hmm. job, like these big concerts we did and that I produced. And I was like, oh, wow, that was so cool. But mm-hmm. I was like 21 at the time and running on adrenaline and achievement and didn't know what I was doing and out of my depth that I didn't savor those moments in the yeah. way that I would today. I wasn't like living as presently. And so it was very fun to like revisit and be like, oh, wow, like I can look back and be like, I'm really proud of this yeah. thing that I sort of didn't appreciate in the moment in the way that I should have. Totally. And I did appreciate it. Just you're not as, I don't think I was like as fully present yeah. and awake. Completely. And and it's it's coming at anything then from that position of, of appreciation and confidence. The other principle that I have that I didn't mention was I believe impactful leadership is time inefficient. Mm. And in each of those memories and mm. that I looked back at, I looked at what was really the fundamental change in me that was a big aha moment. And it was another leader taking the time, even if it was 30 seconds, but doing something out the box to give me that moment. Yeah. And looking back, that was what I valued. Right. The thoughtfulness. Well, any great leader I know that I've seen run multiple companies mm-hmm. and have people come with them company to company takes the time. Yeah. And is really present in conversation. Yeah. And it's it's time inefficient and it's okay, right? Yeah. And and so I looked at that and I was like, I want to have that impact at that level. 
and I have been official advisor. I've advised companies I've invested in as well. And, and I'm like, I'm going to go back and do coaching. And I struggled with that choice. And because I was like, this is what I want to do to impact people right, right. now. And this is why. And then I was in my own head saying, I don't want to build a services business. Right. And a dear mentor of mine looked at me and said, why do you have to build anything? Woo! Right? <laughs> I was like, whoa. Again. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I don't. Yeah. And so come the beginning of the year, I've just started coaching full time. I will do project work, yeah. a lot of cultural work for sometimes my clients, sometimes others. And I am just taking a lot of time to say yes to the things that I want to do and no, not me and referring out work yep. to those things that I don't want to do or that aren't in line. And yeah. it's been a lot of fun. And I don't know. I don't think you have to know. I think it's yeah. like following the joy and the process. Totally. And if that's nourishing you now, great. It may not nourish you forever, but it doesn't matter. And I think that's one of the biggest things is, mm -hmm. you know, what we want to encourage people to do is find the joy in the process because I think that is the sweet spot of work. Totally. And that's exactly. I don't know. And I'm like, I don't have to build anything. I can just do. Right. And, you know, there's times and seasons. And just, be. And just yeah. be. There's times and seasons. This is my time and season to just be. And the impact that I am making through my CEOs is really fulfilling to me. It's been fun. So we are going to jump into our rapid fire five questions. So just whatever you're intuition tells you that's what you say perfect what would you tell your 20 year old self give yourself a break you're okay yeah 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 <laughs> what is the last book you read i just read brand culture fusion oh, amazing book perfect yes. okay brand culture fusion what are you struggling with right now my love of my life who is my my dog who is my everything and my friends tell me he is my person, has cancer, and we're on make every day the best day possible plan, and it breaks my heart. It's hard. Yeah. What is bringing you joy right now? Sitting here with you. Oh, <laughs> same, <laughs> same. I know. So good. Yeah. So good to have you here. It's so wonderful. And what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I know you've given us some good ones in this interview, <laughs> but what are, what is the best one? Be true to you. Mm. If you believe in yourself, that means believing in your authentic self. Yep. And that's where you make impact. That's what that's all about. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for being here. So excited. <laughs> Susan really is a legend and having her here was such a treat. And these are some really great takeaways I hope you'll take with you and employ in your work life. Focus on your purpose, values, and principles when you are building a company and a brand. Those purpose, values, and principles will carry you through. Great leaders see through the eyes of those they are leading. They don't give them the answers. They teach them how to cook so they can cook for themselves. Susan and I both share a deep, deep belief that diversity is the key to company survival that building inclusive structures are not only the way of the future, the way of the current, but also the way to be the most innovative and most profitable. This one's good. Company culture will be created regardless. So do yourself a favor and build it with intention so you don't wake up with a company culture that you are not proud of. 
and you have to start early. It does take time. Building good company culture, as Susan says, is not time efficient. Impactful leadership, she says, is time inefficient. Taking the time pays off even if it's inefficient for your processes because that is what builds a company. That is what builds people. That is what rallies them around a common cause. So taking that time will save you so much time in the long term. So get out of sort of the short-term thinking brain and really have that bigger picture vision so you can build the thing that you want to build and make sure it has a legacy. This podcast is one of the most nourishing things that I do with my time. And it could not be possible without a select few people who really have put their time and energy to make this this podcast live. So thank you, Wine Design, South by Southwest Innovators Fund, Lenny Skolnick, and Young Scorp Social. You guys really are the unsung heroes of this podcast, the little pod that could. I thank you so, so much and can't wait to hear all of your feedback on this amazing season.